And if we just sat here and we're all like, man, does this, like, is he serious about this? We would all be running out of this, these doors. Right? There wouldn't be enough stones in St. Charles to wrap around our neck. So let's unpack it a little bit, and I think we'll see the implications. The word sin at the end of verse 2 is the Greek word scandalon. Now, the Greek word scandalon, different from just general sin, means to lure bait. A scandalon was a stick that was used to set bait. It's also... Uh, a scandal and can also be taken very literally as a stumbling block. So what Jesus is saying is if you are a stumbling block to any of these little ones, it's so severe that I would rather you just end it all because causing one of these little ones to sin is a wretched sin. Now there's other verses in the scriptures that point to the same thing in Romans chapter 14 verse 12. No need to turn there. Paul says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, it says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew or Greek or anyone in the body of Christ. Can I describe something to you here? Causing someone to stumble in Scripture is taken very seriously. It is a severe issue. It's a severe problem. And Jesus, turning to His boys, says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you need to understand that we will take this with great severity. Now, it's great to like talk about causing people to stumble generally. But let's get specific, shall we, for a little bit. And I think what we're going to find is that we're causing a lot of stumbling in and around us. I put these on the screen if you're taking notes. Um, I want to break these down into two categories. I think most often we cause people to stumble in things that people see and things that people hear. Let's hang in things that people see uh, for a second. Put the first one up there for me. I think one of the first ways that we cause people to stumble is, uh, put that first one up there for me, Andrew, is when people look in, and this could be just talking about the body of Christ, when they see segregation and separation and, excuse my, my French here, clickedness, when they see a body of people who have excluded themselves from anyone else, when they see a group of people who have ostracized those who don't look like them or don't talk like them or don't say the Christianese rhetoric, it creates this idea that the people in here are good and the people out there are bad. As you and I know, that goes completely against Scripture. Because Scripture says that we are all sin and that we all need Jesus. And so at any point, if a church or body of people creates this idea that in here we have it all perfectly unwrapped, we've put a major stumbling block for our brothers and our sisters. Can we agree for a moment that if we are not careful, we will become a church community that segregates and separates and creates the clique and that's one of the words that I absolutely hate. I don't know if you like me. I hate the word. When someone says, there's just a click over there. Like, I, I just hate that word. You know what I mean? I'm like, are you sure? Because to say something is a click for me just comes with such negative connotations. Um, so have you done that at all? Have we done that at all? Because if we do, we're creating a stumbling block for our brothers and our sisters. Secondly, we talk about this all the time. It's hypocrisy. I want to again define hypocrisy. 
Because ultimately we're all hypocrites. We hold to a standard that we can't attain and only by God's grace are we able to do it. But a hypocrite is one who says, I have it all together and I don't necessarily need Jesus for righteousness. And then when we do sin, we're like, oh, I can't believe that that happened. A hypocrite is one who acts like they don't need grace. There is nothing hypocritical about you and I saying I'm depraved, nasty, grotesque, in need of the grace of God. So when we do fail, guess what? Like we're fulfilling our expectations. I told you I would, you know. I'm a sinner. I'm a human. And so no one's able to look in and say, whoa, 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 wait. You were smiling in there, but out there I see your life. Friends, hypocrisy, I think we can agree, is one of the major stumbling blocks in our American culture. Thirdly, um, this is kind of strange, but I wanted to throw this in there because we never talk about body language, right? It's like, you never have like a whole teaching on body language. It's just kind of weird. And quite frankly, Jesus never touches on it, you know? Like, make sure your arms are folded in this way, you know? But for me, relationally, body language coming out with pride is huge. I am more bothered at times, relationally. It puts a stumbling block for me, relationally, when I watch pride just seep out of people and even myself when it comes to body language. And you know what I'm saying. It's like the look that you're angry and that you're deserved. It's the, you know, the hands crossed back and the, you know what I mean, and the, and the back all the way back and it's the chick, you know, hand on the hip and, you know, this leg out thing that you guys, I don't even know why you do that. It's like you're, you know, you're almost like ballerina dancing at times. I don't even understand. But body language, friends, can we, how many times have you ever walked away and said, that person's angry with me? They didn't say a word. You could just tell. How many times has body language put up a stumbling block for you? Has caused you to walk away from that time with someone and say, like, what's, what's up? Like, what's the deal here? Friends, it's a major stumbling block, right? We don't want to be fake here. We don't, we don't want to be the people that just put on the body language, like, you know, like it's a small world after all. And we're like, hey, come on in. But it's a lot. It's great. You know, no, no, no. But at the same time, no matter what's happening in our wretched days, no matter how bad or the storm is, can we all agree that we have hope at the end of the day, right? And so hope in me, at the end of the day, should create a certain amount of body language that says, thank the Lord Jesus for himself again today. Because without him, I'd be, I'd be utterly without hope. Now, things that people hear. There's five of these. First one. Um, some of you are very angry. And I think you can agree with me that when we get angry, we start to say words that we never ever say otherwise, unless we're angry, right? It's like all of a sudden you slip in, you know, a D-bomb or even the F-bomb, right? Like all of a sudden, your language just completely changes. I've seen in Christian circles, anger and rage control people before. And it's a major, huge stumbling block. Is it for you? Get angry, easily angered. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not easily angered. Is that you? Secondly, uh, secondly and thirdly, um, I, don't, I don't understand why we struggle with shading the truth so much. Lies in the church have almost completely ruined it at times. Um, because at the core of a lie is I need to shade and I need to make myself look better than I am. But if we've, if we've created a community where we're all saying, you know what, we all need Jesus, and all of us are depraved, and all of us need him, then, 
then why would we need to shade the truth? What ultimately are we fearful of? What ultimately are we scared of? Is it that someone would find us out? Well, friends, let me tell you something. We're found out. We're found out. So why would we ever need to shade the truth with one another to try to gain some advantage? What if honesty really ran this community? I'll tell you what would happen is people would feel like they could be authentic and not hung on the outside of the church door. And that, my friends, would be beautiful. Thirdly, you've already seen it, but um, one of Jeff, Jason, and I's biggest roles as pastors of this church is to protect us from false teaching. False teaching in America is a huge stumbling block. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about there being this gospel that the church in Ephesus had, had, had given into, and, and Scripture says that it's, it's actually no gospel at all. And so we teach and talk all the time about what is true and what is right. And know this here at Matthias' lot, that we take the Scriptures, friends, with such great seriousness in every issue that we come to, we're wrestling with the Scriptures, and that must be your call as well. This false teaching is a huge stumbling block because people attach themselves to something that is based upon not the Scripture and not the truth. And when you base your life upon something that's not the truth, can you see how it could be a stumbling block? Fourthly, is that even a word? Judgment. Um, I look at someone and I instantly go through the checklist. And I've been praying that God would change me on this. But we just go there so quick, don't we? We see people in the hallway or even here at church. They look like this. They smell like this. They're wearing this. They talk like this. They don't say this. They do say that. They have this family. I mean, the list is extensive, isn't it? And the moment that one of them doesn't align with us, it's like, yeah, yeah, they're not cool, you know? And, and we still use, in our mind, the cool word, you know? We even say rad at times just to make ourselves feel better, you know what I mean? They're not rad, you know? This judgment, friends, in a church, it can kill it. It can crush it. And that's why Jesus says, if this is, if this is what you're a part of, and again, I'm just taking these sins out of the Scriptures. If this is what you're a part of, it would be better if you just, if you just left and tied a millstone around your neck. Uh, lastly, this is one that we battle the most here at Matthias, is gossip. I've seen it destroy church communities. I've seen it wreck homes. And friends, here at Matthias, I just want to encourage you guys again on something. Um, if Brandon and I are having a conversation and I begin to gossip to Brandon about someone else, the way that you stop gossip in a community is Brandon says, hey, Mark, um, could you just stop talking right now? Here's what we're going to do. Um, you're going to come with me, and we're going to go to the person that you were just gossiping about, and you're going to communicate with them what you just told me. And what begins to happen in a, in a, in a community is everyone is, like, scared, right? Because all that takes is once, you know? One time when you're sitting next, you know, in Brandon's car, and he's driving you to the person who you've just gossiped about, and you're going to have to sit there and tell him what you just said, and you, you said some nasty things. Pretty soon, everyone's freaked out, like no one's gossiping. And you know what? We'll take that. Just, just be scared of it. You know what I mean? And, and I know you're thinking, like, man, Mark, that's hardcore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Gossip is a massive stumbling block. So if you're like me, you look at this list, and you're like, um, yeah, that's... Like, I do all those, you know what I mean? Like, uh, one, and two, and three. Actually, all eight, yeah, I do all eight, you know? 
So, so what do we do, right? It's like, okay, so is Jesus literally saying we should just all go jump in the sea? Mafia style. What is he saying? Friends, he's pointing again to himself. And he's saying again that to not be a stumbling block, then I have to do a daily work of changing your heart. And righteousness that comes through me has to daily, daily be on your mind and on your lips. And what I can do in transforming your mind and your soul and your heart has to daily be who I am. And Jesus responds in verse 3. So watch yourself. He tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, watch your doctrine and your life closely. How many of you guys are people watchers? All right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I've noticed something. My wife, and I've talked about this before with Heidi, major people watcher, okay? I mean, if you set her in an airport, you could literally leave for like three days, come back, you know, she'd just be sitting there, you know, just drooling because she hasn't eaten, you know what I mean? She loves to people watch. But what, what I've noticed about, about watching is that when you watch, you notice. When you notice, you examine. And when you examine, truth is revealed. I was in the airport, um, and I noticed that the person sitting across from me had a unibrow, okay? It means, no, there's no break in between the left and the right. Now, I'm not making a judgment here. I'm just saying, okay, but when you notice something, all right, or when you see something, you notice it, and then you begin to examine it. You kind of come in closer. Like, is that really, a, you know? And, and after, after a couple minutes of deduction, you're able, like, truth is revealed. You're able to say, Yes, this person does, in fact, have a unibrow. So you're able to walk, walk away with some truth. Jesus very purposefully says, watch yourself. Because when you watch, you notice. And when you notice, you examine. And when you examine, truth is revealed. He very intentionally says, look inwardly and let the truth of where you're stumbling in these things, come out. Watch. And when you watch, you'll notice. And when you notice, you'll examine. And when you examine, the truth will be revealed that you need me more. And that's a great place to be. And so if anything, this list, for me, tonight says I need him. And without him, like you might as well put a millstone and let's do it. But with him, listen, but with Him, freedom from that entire list. But with Him, the possibility to go against these things. And in ra- instead of being a stumbling block, listen, by His power, reflecting Him. And that's the opposite, isn't it? Instead of a stumbling block through the power of His Spirit, we're showing people Jesus. And isn't that great? When He uses us to reflect Himself. Right? It's great, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, and this teaching is about to get a whole lot more difficult. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Deep swallow. I've had some time to think about forgiveness. And in doing an inductive study on forgiveness, I've literally looked at every single scripture in the entire Bible that has to do with forgiveness, just to prepare it for tonight. And I've noticed several things. If Jesus 
to causing young ones to stumble seriously, you need to know that in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, listen to this, please. Jesus says, if you forgive your brother, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive your brother, guess what? He will not forgive you. We have to pause and say, is that true? We, we have to pause and step back as Jesus says in one of the greatest sermons ever preached, if you forgive, I'll forgive, and if you don't, I won't. For me and you, that all of a sudden takes forgiveness of our brothers and it puts it on this huge pedestal. There's other places in the scriptures that talk about this. Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Just about everywhere in the New Testament talks about forgiveness. It couples our forgiveness with the fact that He forgave us. Let's expose the heart for a moment, shall we? Now. Over and over and over, we've encountered pain. Some of you in here, some wretched things have been done to you. Some of you in here, your name has been, I mean, literally just deframed. You've been called a cheat. You've been called uh, names that I couldn't even repeat. There's some of you females in here that have been physically, emotionally, sexually abused. If we were to collect all of the pain in this room, can you agree with me that the pain would be great? And so we have some baggage. But let me expose the heart for a moment in what we do do when it comes to forgiveness. I think a lot of times that we want to have our cake and eat it too. Jesus, knowing this, tells us a parable in Matthew chapter 18. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. This servant owes his master 10,000 talents. And his master decides that he's going to get back what this servant owes him. And so he calls the servant. He's like, hey, here's the deal. I'm selling you and all you got to pay back what you owe me. And the scripture says that the servant pleads with him. No, 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 no. Please, like, just give me more time. Just give me... And guess what the master does? He forgives the debt. It's over. It's gone. You know what? Grace and mercy. Then the servant goes and finds someone who owes him money. And that person who owes the servant money takes the exact same approach. Hey, hey, please have grace on me. And the scripture says in the parable that the servant like grabs him to choke him. And then he has him thrown in prison and in jail and extends no mercy. You see, for us, Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness but forgiving my brothers, like, come on now, seriously. Like, you can't, you can't be serious about that. Like, we want to have our cake and eat it too. Jesus, give us forgiveness. All my brothers, forget about them, right? It's exposing the heart. The very first thing I wrote on my whiteboard and studying for tonight were these two stick guys. Um, they didn't look exactly like this. This is a computer modification, okay? I don't know if you can tell this. I didn't take this right off my whiteboard. The very first question that I asked in studying this teaching was, why will I forgive one and not the other? When someone sins against me, 
Why do I forgive one and not the other? And you know what I'm talking about. It's like one of my closest friends can do something really wrong to me. But because of my what? My relationship with them? Because of the amount that they've forgiven me? Because of all the times that we've gone through? I will forgive that person, in quotation marks, very quickly. But random McGee, who I have barely any relationship with, who I have a lot of baggage with, does something wrong, almost the exact same thing that the person I have a relationship with, he does something wrong. It's like, no, 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 whoa, whoa, this isn't forgiven at all. We, listen to this. We forgive based upon relationships. Now, many of you guys are like, is that bad? Like, is it bad to forgive because you know someone better? I mean, Mark, doesn't that make sense? It does, except for the fact that Jesus throws the R word into the mix. Rebuke. Now, if you're like me, when I hear rebuke, I think of like Louisville slugger across the face, right? For, for whatever reason, rebuke is just a weird word, isn't it? Like you say it, and it just feels naughty, you know? It's like rebuke. You know, it's like WWE, we're going to throw down, I'm going to tell you you're a punk, and then I'm going to hit you, and then all of a sudden you're going to give me a hug, and it's going to be great. Like, rebuke for me just has some weird connotations, right? But to rebuke is what Jesus says is the first part of forgiveness. Now, when, it, when we relationally forgive, do you guys see what we do? My good friend does something wrong, right? And I forgive. And what does that look like? I forget about it. And I just brush it under the rug. The problem is, Jesus says, rebuke. And if they repent, then what? Forgive. Jesus, being the Savior of the universe, all-knowing, all-smart, okay, knows that for us to grow, and for us to learn, and for us to wrestle, that rebuke, is a necessary factor in forgiveness. It's Ephesians 4, sitting down, speaking the truth in love, and me telling this friend that I do love, and that I do care about, and that we have journeyed through life with, you know what, brother? You hurt me. And in that moment, guided by Christ as giving us this model, I have allowed a phenomenal opportunity for Him and I to grow together. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He came to teach us how to live. So when it comes to forgiveness, if all we're doing is brushing things under the rug because we have a great relationship with some and then building up a grudge, gossip, and, and a, you know, just a wretched heart over another, do you see how we're making forgiveness completely about our needs and we're not going through the process and so forgiveness, listen, never really happens. Three years down the road, that same friend has done 40 things. You've never sat down. You've never spoken the truth in love. But all of a sudden, the atomic bomb gets thrown in the room. You've never had to wrestle with life. You've never had to journey and all of a sudden, they do that one thing that tips it all off. And now you have, no, you have no grounds to go by. You've never had to wrestle. You've never had to journey. And so all of a sudden, they do this huge, disastrous thing to you. And 
you feel like you can't go to them because you never have. And so guess what? We embondage ourselves, my friends. And we hold it in. And we create double and triple and quadruple the pain that was necessary for us to wrestle through it. We forgive relationally. Jesus says rebuke. Hey, I know it's hard. One of the hardest things to do is to sit down with your friend and say, you know what? You hurt me. Okay? You've, you've screwed up. You've messed up. Well, what does it look like for a culture to be created where when it comes to forgiveness, our very first inclination is not to go to someone else who will be on our side, right? Like all of a sudden team sports comes out when it, when it comes to uh, hurting each other, you know? It's like we gather our team, you know? All right, this person over there, communist party of one, you know what I mean? They did this nasty, wretched thing to me, right? And so we gather our peeps. That was horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, that was nasty. Yeah, that was horrible, right? And we're all giving each other high fives and just growing this grudge and this idea of gossip in our hearts when all the while Jesus says, go to the person, sit down, speak the truth in love, and you'll be amazed at what can happen. That relationship and that time will be hard and it will be difficult. And some of you are like, well, what if they don't repent? And bigger than that, if you're like me, I look at the scripture and, if, and the rest of you guys, Jesus says, what, if they, if they repent seven times in one day, what does he say to do? What does he say? He says, forgive them. He tells Peter in another place in scripture, in Matthew, it, 70 times 7, right? So it's not about the number. Jesus is saying it's unlimited. So if you're like me, you're like, um, if a brother of mine repents, like for the same sin, seven times in one day, did he really repent, right? Is anyone else with me? Like if he's just like, hey, I'm sorry, right? And we work it out, and then he comes back and does the same thing. I'm like, hey, it's like, no, you didn't. But Jesus says, forgive. Why? Jesus says, let me figure it out. You err on the side of forgiveness constantly, never ceasing. Trust me to be the judge. Trust me to gauge repentance or not repentance. You err on the side of forgiveness. Matthew 18 spells out what we're to do when someone, a brother or sister, does not repent. And we're scripturally to go to them first and then work through this process of bringing others who we trust. And, and that's a very intense process. But here's the reality. Some of you guys right now, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody I need to forgive. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm really good at it, you know? Just kind of brush it under the rug. Friends, how many conversations do you think you've missed out on? Huh? Quick, if we were to do a quick poll, Right? We are going, going, going around the room right now. How many times do you think you should have sat in a time of rebuke? Can you think thousands of conversations in this room? Listen, thousands of opportunities to grow. Listen, thousands of opportunities for God's Spirit to come down and to show us what grace really is. If you think you've forgiven, I've created a list of signs that you know you haven't. Uh, stick guys down. Thank you. Signs you haven't forgiven, number one. When you think about that particular person, you still, you still feel pain. I mean, you're still, you're still just wrestling with, it's still, it's still hard. Now, listen, 
I don't. And nowhere in Scripture does it ever say forgive and forget. Like, hold on a second. No. Forgive and forget is an American parable. And I'm not saying forgetting is necessarily bad. But sometimes, sometimes remembering is what is necessary. For, for some of you women in here who have been abused. Okay? Forgive and forget would say forgive and just go back to them. You think Jesus would say that? Forgive and just walk right back in. More abuse, more abuse, more abuse. No, my friends. So it's not talking about forgiving and forgetting, but it's saying that when you come into the situation and you still think about the person, your heart still feels pain. Deep down, you know that it really is not dealt with. Deep down, you know that it's not forgiven. Number two. You find yourself still talking negatively about that person when you're around other people and you have opportunities to talk about them. You're like still heaping the insults. Any opportunity you have to gossip. Any of those people come to mind right now? You don't have a good thing to say about them. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Hmm. We love that verse, don't we? Number three says this. You are not able to forgive similar offenses with others. I think this is a huge indicator. Someone else does that same thing to you and you have a really, really difficult time forgiving because of the baggage that's been built up. It could be an indication that you haven't really forgiven the original offense. Number four says this. You still want the person to pay somehow. It would be great if they were like under the guillotine publicly. You know what I mean? Like deep down you'd be like, oh, I don't want to see that person. Deep down you're like, kill them! You know what I mean? Off with the head, like cut off their fingers, you know, just pull their fingernails out one at a time. That'll be great, you know what I mean? Like all of you are like, I've never said that. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? I know you've been sitting in your car. Wouldn't it be great, you know, if little Susie had to, you know, incur just a little nice hammer to the foot, you know what I mean? Now, again, like, that exposes our heart. You're like, oh, I would never say that. Really? Hmm. Okay. Number five says this. And this encompasses all of them. Your heart still feels in bondage. Jesus said, I've come to set you free. How many of you, because of forgiveness, aren't freed? You're not freed. You're still, that yoke of slavery has still got you bound. Friends, can I tell you something, church? What does it look like for a community of believers to be quick? to rebuke and quick to repent and quick to forgive. Is it possible that Jesus knew what he, was, what he was talking about? Is it possible that he had in his mind this community of people that could live with one another? The reason why he says forgive and I'll forgive and don't forgive or I won't is because we need it. You see what I'm saying? Like, we need forgiveness. If Brandon and I are in this relationship and we're walking around in life, and I have him on this high pedestal, Brandon never fails, you know? No, no, Brandon needs forgiveness. I need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. And that's why Jesus said, forgive, because you're going to be working with a bunch of sinful people who need it. And so if they need it, you better learn how to work through it. And the way you work through it is you rebuke and you repent and you come together and you let me work in relationships. And then people get to start saying, yeah, 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 it was, it was unbelievable. Like me and, this, me and this person, we had this qualm thing. 
But then I sat down and I told them like where my heart was. And you'll never believe it. They repented. And we like hugged even, you know. And you're like, well, well, all the time it won't be that way. I agree. I agree. And some of you are thinking right now, so what about non-Christians? Because scripture, especially in the New Testament, I use the terminology brother or sister. When a brother wrongs you or a sister wrongs you, what about non-Christians? What do we do with them? They get the Louisville slugger, right? And that's what you want me to say, you know? Biblically, it's like bat. Not a wood one either. Metal. You know what I mean? When a non-Christian, when a non-Christian goes against us, because they don't need forgiveness at all. You know what I mean? I mean, they're perfect, right? I mean, we just take it to them, right? You guys remember this little guy in the scriptures named Joseph? Anybody remember this guy, right? Pretty big character in the Old Testament, you know what I mean? Joseph in uh, Genesis chapter 50, his brothers come back, they've pretty much punked him at every level. You guys remember what he says? What you intended for evil, what does he say? God intended for what? Good. Now, Joseph clearly had already worked through this idea of forgiveness with his brothers. Biblically, there's not a great case on exactly what to do with a non-Christian, but it's clear even in Jacob and Esau too, in Genesis 33, we see a similar story. It's clear that forgiveness is a God-given thing that He does in our hearts. And so when working with non-Christians, I just want to encourage you to ask God to change your heart, to ask God to rule your heart, to ask God to work through the process with you. And rebuke would, would always be good. We're not saying that a non-Christian will respond the same way. But why should we not sit them down and say, you know what, you hurt me. It's amazing what could happen with, uh, with someone who doesn't know Jesus when we just sit down and we're honest. They're like, hey, you're a Christian, aren't you? And you're honest? This is the first time I've experienced this, you know? And all of a sudden they start asking questions. And all of a sudden, relationally, we start to take miles and miles and we start to go further. And the apostles respond this way in verse 5. Only time in Scripture that they say this, increase our faith. They say this one time in any of the Gospels, and it's right here, right now. And and the rest of you guys like, feel that? You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, give me some of that, you know? The, The disciples, like you and me, are overwhelmed. They're like, are you kidding me? Like, this is impossible. I'd rather kick my brother in the face sometimes, let alone forgive him. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. We, we, we quote that verse a lot, don't we? I've quoted that verse a lot. But the context of that verse is right here, right now. Jesus, this is nearly impossible. And is it possible that that's just what Jesus wants them to feel? Hey, boys, you're right. It is. And so look at this. He responds this way in verse 6. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and don't you love that? He doesn't discount the faith idea. They say increase our faith. He doesn't discount the faith idea. So he connects faith and forgiveness and love. Why? Because to forgive, we have to trust that He is going to take care of the consequences. And when we're not trusting, when we don't have faith that He's going to do it, we will be less inclined to forgive. But the rest of this verse, He kind of modifies with what the disciples had said. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, if you guys even know what that is, right? Just because I've studied this, I know what it is, but like I've never seen a mulberry tree. I'm not going to claim to be some archaeologist tree person, you know what I mean? Whatever. 
Don't worry about it. Archaeologist. What's what's the what's tree people? Hermeneuticals. Horticulturists, right? What are they? Okay, awesome. A mulberry tree has long roots. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. All right, they got big roots. Right? They, they, can, they can grow deep. They last some 600 years. So Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. In other places of the scriptures, he uses a similar analogy with a, a, a mountain being placed in the sea. So he takes their increase, our faith prayer, and he says, you're right, it is about faith, but the whole like increase, I don't know if you understand He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this deeply rooted tree, go into the sea, and it will happen. And what Jesus is saying is, like, that's crazy, isn't it? And the rhetorical answer will be like, yeah, it is crazy. And Jesus is saying, you're right, it is. Because with me, all things are possible. With me, a mulberry tree can be taken out of the soil and thrown into the sea. And you can rebuke. And you can repent. And you can forgive. With me, he's saying, all things are possible. And so it's not necessarily about the quantity of faith, like you're talking about disciples. It's about the quality. And Jesus says, can I tell you something about the quality? I've given it to you. And let me tell you something about what I've given to you, is it's good. And so when you trust and when you believe, the impossible can be possible. And the church community, like you and I, can learn how to forgive. Coming in for the landing here in verse 7. Suppose one of you, he kind of switches gears here, it feels a little bit awkward. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? He asks a rhetorical question. There's a servant out working the land, the master comes home, and he's saying, would the master say, come on, young lad, you know, let's come and share in this dinner together. The rhetorical answer is no. Verse 8, would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, then you may eat and drink. And the answer, of course, would be yes. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? That rhetorical answer to that would be no. But verse 10 says this, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now when you throw the duty word in there, it starts to get a little like works-y. You guys with me? What Jesus is saying here, listen to this. What he's saying is that this whole forgiveness issue, if you're not able to say, God, you called me to do it, you've demanded of my life, so let it be so. If you're not able to say, I'm an unworthy servant, God, change my heart, God, mold this in me, God, do what you would in me. If we're not able to say, God, would you be our primary objective then we're missing obedience. And let me tell you what I, what I mean here. We use service a lot of times. We'll walk out of here and we'll rebuke someone and they'll repent and we'll forgive them. And so all of a sudden we feel like, Yahtzee, you know what I mean? It's like notch one. Hey, I did what the scripture said. You know, and we're like texting our lot family. 
it was awesome, you know? And we should share this with people, but I'm just saying, here's what we do. And we use our service as a bargaining chip. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, like we serve and we forgive and we are obedient, and we're like, hey, God, like, I'm all in. You know what I mean? We, like, push it in, right? Jamie, is that proper all in there? Yeah. We go all in, right? Bargaining chip. Hey, God, did you see our service? Did you, did you see our obedience? It was amazing. Like, I did the whole thing you told me to. Repent, rebuke, all, all those things. And so we push in. And we use our obedience and our service as a bargaining chip. And Jesus says, do you think I'm going to say thank you? What kind of audacity do you have to think that me, the sovereign king of the universe, is going to look down to you and say, thank you? No. You have just done what I've told you to do, what I've equipped you to do, what I've called you to do. And if you can't take a great amount of joy in serving me as an unworthy servant without some bargaining chip mentality, then you've missed me. What he's saying is, serving me unworthily unworthily brings a tremendous amount of freedom. What he's saying is, is that forgiving brings a tremendous amount of freedom. What he's saying is, is not being a stumbling block to those that are around us brings a tremendous amount of freedom. What he's saying is, is that following Christ releases us. Is that listening and obeying takes the yoke of slavery and takes it completely off. It takes the millstone that we deserve off and it frees us. So we're free to forgive. We're free to obey. We're free to worship. We're free to love. We're free to be faithful. And let me tell you something. If you've ever been in jail or been enslaved, there's nothing like the feeling of freedom. Let's stand together, church. I think we need to pray. I'm scared, to be honest. I mean, I, as I was preparing to teach all this, I'm like, you know what? I've got some unforgiveness in my heart, man. I've got some conversations and some relationships that are going to need some time. Maybe you guys are like me. At the end of the day, I, I desire freedom from Christ. And at the end of the day, I believe wholeheartedly that unless he helps and does this and implants this trust, then I'm done. Are you guys with me? So we think prayer is just out there concept. Prayer. Can I tell you something right now? Friends, prayer is one of the most beautiful things that we have. And so let's take a couple minutes now as we prepare to respond in worship. Maybe you have some names on your heart and some conversations that need to be had. Let's pray that God would give us a spirit of love when we rebuke. Let's pray that he'll give us a spirit of repentance. Let's pray that he'll give us a a heart that's ready to forgive. Let's spend a couple minutes right now, just collectively, out loud, collectively. Let's just pray for his power and his strength.
God, give us strength. Give us courage. Help us. Help us. Help us to forgive, oh God. Help us to see that we're to forgive as you've forgiven us. Help us to understand that rebuke is a beautiful thing that you've blessed us with to grow. God, I pray for this church. And I pray that we'll become a community that is unafraid of hard conversation, but rather sees it as an opportunity to learn more of who you are. God, for the names and the relationships that are coming up in our mind and in our heart right now, I pray over the conversations that will be had. God, may Matthias's life be a church that seeks to serve you, believing that it sets us free.